Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm, and today we're going to discuss sections 4.5, 4.6, and 4.7, which cover defining conversions to user-defined types, using built-in conversion functions, and specifically focusing in on using the array conversion function. So you can join us by following us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. Cool. So shall we get on with the book? Let's get on with the book. So how did you feel about these sections? Oh, they were pretty good. Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm not convinced, Nadia. I think uh, I was just trying to recall (laughs) what we covered in them. Um, No, I find they were rather straightforward. I think the interesting thing is going to be working out when to use these functions that Avdi talks about and making sure that I'm always taking advantage of the built-in things that Ruby gives us. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. What about you? Yeah, that was my takeaway too. I felt like these three, it felt like a continuation of the previous sections we did last week where we're still dealing with input and we're dealing with how do we make a system that is flexible enough that, um, you know, we're not, that it's not painful, it's not hard to use, but it still has guidelines and constraints so that we're not just taking on any old thing. And so coming from last week, moving into these sections, I already had kind of a good mindset of where we were going and what the purpose was. So these sections felt a lot easier to digest. I felt that too. Let's start with 4.5. Let's do that. So 4.5 is define conversions to user defined types. And so the premise of this is that we want to have instances of other classes be implicitly converted to the needed type if possible. So when I first read that, I was a little confused. I thought, okay, why would we want instances of other classes to be made into other types of classes? But the example that we talk about is was just a really, really good practical real life example. Exactly. So yeah, and that helped so much whenever, you know, books and tutorials can bring in real world examples. It's super helpful. And so in this one, it talked about the very tragic thing that happened on September 23rd, 1999, where the Mars Climate Orbiter disintegrated during orbital insertion. And that was because of a a very, you know, a very frustrating mistake, right? It was conversions. It was converting from one unit of measure to another and not doing that correctly. And that resulted in, you know, in, in a very tragic event. And it's interesting because, you know, we read these books and often you have examples that are rather trivial in the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, a certain case will be made up, a story, in order to illustrate the concept that you're trying to look at. But, but this was also a rather, you know, surprising example because obviously NASA had to rethink how they funded certain projects after mm-hmm. this orbiter disintegrated. Right, yeah. And when I realized the example he was about to give, and I could kind of see the direction that Avdi was going to go in once he, you know, he 
told us that context, that story. And I immediately sat up straight. I was like, oh, God, this is going to be really important. You know, it just made the lesson learned seem so much more important than it would be, you know, with a more contrived example. Right. Because you think about all the things like, you know, airplanes and cars and things like that. There's software behind all of those. And it made me think, oh, wow, a simple unit mix up could cause accidents. So I knew that for this lesson, I had to pay uh, extra attention. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't want that to be my fault. So it talks about how we store different numbers and and different values. And it talks about how uh, when we think about numbers, you know, specifically in terms of, you know, one meter, one foot, that kind of thing, we might just store the one value, right? Just storing the integer. And that's not very helpful because we don't have the units attached to it. We don't really, when we're doing conversions and we're going from one to another, we, it's very easy to mix that up and it's very easy to assume a unit that doesn't actually exist. And so in this example, he basically talks through not working with the raw numbers, but working always with a class that includes both the value of that number and also the unit of measurement. So FD asks us to imagine a control program for a spacecraft for something like the Mars Orbiter. And we want to look at the change in altitude. And we're assuming that those are going to be instances of meters. And so he shows us this meters class that he's that he has um, defined. And so you initialize it with a value. And you also have um, a subtract method, which takes an argument of other. And you essentially subtract one instance of meters from another one and the interesting thing here is he talks he makes the value method protected yes i love that and so i was thinking that protected is a keyword that i don't think i've ever used in my ruby work and i don't know whether it's to do with the nature of the stuff i've been working on or whether i haven't and i haven't needed it or whether i've missed opportunities and I actually did a bit of research because I, for a second, I wasn't sure about the distinction between private and protected. Um, and so just to sort of go over that, to clarify the dis- difference for anyone listening who's not sure. So we have public methods, which can be accessed by any object. And then we have private methods that can only be called from within the calling object. And you cannot access another instance's private methods directly so only that instance can call a private method and then you have protected methods which can be called by any instance of the defining class or its subclasses so when avdi defines the value method on meters as a protected method it means that you could only Um, subtract meters from meters and so you protect yourself from getting unit mix-ups i generally don't use protected i generally just use private actually honestly forgot all about protected until i saw this example and i was like oh yeah that's a thing that people use yeah the same Um, yeah and so i'm wondering in your research did you come across when to use private and when to use protected so i Read a couple of things, particularly on Stack Overflow and just from Googling around. And I think generally it's to do with cases like the one that Avdi introduces where you want to do some form of comparison or you want only 
either some comparison or interaction between objects of the same type. And so you wouldn't want another class calling that method, but you do want objects of the same type to be able to speak to one another through using that method. So when you're doing like subtractions or, or additions, it's very, very useful for um, guarding yourself against unit mix-ups because, you know, in the case that we've given, if you try and call the subtract method on another class, it will say, it will give you an, a method error and say, oops, you've tried to call a protected method on meters, which you can't do because you are not of um, the meters class. And so those are the general examples that I found. So the one thing I'm a little unclear of is, so it says that protected, meaning that only other instances of meters will be able to access it in order to use it in calculations. So what objects are not able to access it? Anything that is not of any instance of an object that is not of class meters. But isn't that the case anyway no like how how would so how would another instance be able to access it without it being called on an instance of meter because it's a method that's defined like it's an instance method defined in the class meter so you can call so the way meters so, so sorry so the way value is defined is so we've got attribute reader to value that's protected so that means that you can either call um, self.value so you can on an instance so you can get the value of itself or another thing that's a meter can call value on that instance or, or can get the get the value on that instance oh so you're saying an, an instance can get another instance's value has access to it right that's a distinction okay got it right uh -huh. so for example if we look at this method defined we've got self.class.new and we've got value minus other dot value. So mm -hmm. that will work because it um, the current meters instance will be able to access value on the other object. But let's say that value was a private method that would fail because it would say, you're trying to call a private method on other. And if it was public, then you'd be fine. And anything could call other dot value. Got it. So it's restricting the value to just being other things of meters. Yes. Other instances of meters. It's okay. the same as private, but other instances can also access it. So, um, yeah. So there are a couple interesting things about this uh, this class that I really liked. One is the fact that uh, we're including or we're extending forwardable, mm -hmm. which was something, which is a module that I was not very familiar with. Did you know about this beforehand? Yes. Um, I've used it recently at work, actually, for delegating methods. Yeah, and I was trying to remember, so I've done delegation as well, but not using affordable. I was using something else in, in Rails specifically, and I can't remember what it is. But I'm going to assume that it probably uses affordable on the on the inside. Um, but yeah, it was really neat to just, you know, look at the def delegators and, and see how all that worked. And in this example, the delegators are all kind of standard conversions that we've already talked about, like 2s, 2int, and 2i. And then it also defines just the minus as well, which is like an arithmetic operation that we define explicitly that also requires that it takes the instance of meters uh, and, and uses that. So again, we're being pretty strict on not using raw numbers and really using um, and really using uh, these classes that we've created so that we have the unit of measurement as well as 
the number value as well. Um, and so what Avdi goes on to talk about next is this idea that we would like everything to be calculated in meters, but we can't assume that meters are going to be used everywhere rather than raw integers. But we'd also like for the fact that we may get inputs in feet and we still want to be able to perform those calculations and get the right result. Um, and so what we need to do is to find a way to convert meters to feet and vice versa. And so this is where we start talking about defining our own conversion protocols, similar to things such as 2int and 2a that we've discussed earlier, but now we're going to need something which is called to meters. That's a good point. And actually, until you just said it, I, I realized that we haven't actually gotten to the section yet. Like we haven't actually gotten to the conversion part. So far, what we talked about is just the setup. Yes. Exactly. Which is interesting and shows that a lot of thought and thinking right. goes into, you know, how you're going to structure your code and what sort of things you're going to need and think about before you get to the meat of whatever it is that you're doing. And so when we look at how he defines to meters, in the meters class, he defines to meters, but that just returns self because it's already in meters. And so you just want to return that object back. But on the feet class, we're going to add a two meters method, which he does. And essentially that just multiplies the meters value, uh, or sorry, the, the value of the feet by 0.3 um, and rounds that. But now we know that if we have um, feet input to our input into our method, then that's going to be safely converted into meters and return to us a new meters object, which can then be used to check the altitude change. Yes. And it's really nice because by creating this conversion method, what we've done is we've given ourselves a little bit more flexibility mm -hmm. and extensibility too, right? Because we can define two meters on a lot of different stuff, on different classes. You know, if we want to have a class inches, we want to have a class centimeters, whatever it is, we can always define the two meters. But it also will trigger a no method error if it doesn't have the two meters. So making sure that we do get the type of thing that we want. Exactly. That's that's the key thing there, this idea that it's open for extension. And if we don't have the type of thing we want, it's going to be clear to us by the, the no method error of what we need to do in order to be able to accommodate whatever that input is that we've been given. And so that wraps up that chapter. Yeah, that, that section was awesome. I think that was my favorite one so far. It was nice and straightforward, a really nicely contained example. And, you know, what I've been enjoying about this book so far is this idea that it says here's a problem that I'm going to introduce and it's done in the the second person you probably want to do this and you want to do that but here's the problem then we're given a sort of real world example and up front we're told what the solution is before Avdi then works through a worked example and it's just such an amazing way to organize a programming book mm-hmm for sure so shall we move on to 4.6? Let's do it. So that one is called use built-in conversion functions. So it's the same idea, same feeling as the section we just described, except we're using the stuff that we already get for free. Yeah, and I love the way Avdi opens this section with, you really, really want to convert an input object into a core type, no matter what the original type is. It, it's reminding me of storytelling, you know, setting the scene desperately want this thing you need this thing what are you gonna do <laughs> yes i really like the two reallys 
That's how I know that it's serious. It's serious. What he talks about is how to how to make it into a core type and how there are different conversion functions that really help do that. And so in the previous chapters, we've talked about 2int and 2s and 2a and a bunch of different types. But in this section, we talk about the kernel module and how it gives us some interesting looking conversion functions. So we're not calling them protocols now, we're calling them functions. You want to tell us why we're calling them functions? Well, they look a bit different to our usual conversion protocols. So to talk about what they look like when you read them, you know, they begin with capital letters and they've got the parentheses after them. So they're looking more like, um, I don't know, is it a Java style function or a statically typed language function? Not quite your normal. Not Ruby. Not Ruby, basically. (laughs) They look different. They're capitalized. And in this case, they each share a name with a Ruby core class. So we've got array, float, string, integer, rational, and complex. Yeah, they make me very uncomfortable. I don't like the capitalize, the capitalization. It makes me, I don't like it at all. You're like, what is this? What's, ha- what's happening? And Avdi says that the reason we calling them functions is because although they're ordinary methods because they're on the kernel module they're available everywhere and they'll interact with the arguments you pass to them not with self so there's no like caller in that same sense he says that these capitalized conversion functions share two traits one of which is the fact that they are idempotent now can we take a mathematical interlude so i can talk about idempotency please do so For me, idempotence is something that has cropped up again and again whilst I've been programming over the last couple of years. Really? I'll be talking about it. Yeah. So, you know, when I was at Pivotal and I'd be pairing with different people and we'd be working on something, someone would say something like, oh, we've got to make sure like it's idempotent. (laughs) And what I, you know, I asked a couple of questions, but you know, the essential thing that I gathered was when something's idempotent, you can call a function again and again on the same thing and you'll get the same response. But when it cropped up in Avdi's book this time, I was like, I want to do a bit more research on this. So I've got this down and it's not just a general feeling of what idempotency is. So by digging a bit deeper, I mean that I went on the Wikipedia. And that's, def- <laughs> that's definitely proper research these days. <laughs> so some interesting trivia. The term was introduced by Benjamin Pierce in the context of numbers that remain the same when raised to a positive integer power. And idempotence literally translates to the quality of having the same power so idem means same and potence means power and there are two main meanings for idempotence depending on on what type of function we're looking at so if we're looking at a unary function i.e a function where you only take one input a function is idempotent in this case if whenever the function's applied twice to any given value, it'll give you the same result as if it were applied once. So say we have a random function called foo and we call it on the number two and then call foo again on that initial call, we'd get the same answer for if we'd only called foo on two once. And to give you a more concrete example, if we think about the absolute value function, so if we take minus three and call absolute on that, you get three. And if you call absolute on that again, you get three. And you can keep doing that. So that's when you have a unary function or a function with one input. And then you can have binary functions, so functions with two inputs. And in the case where both of the arguments are the same, 
then an idempotent binary function will give you that value as the result. So the number one is an idempotent of multiplication because you do one multiplied by one and you get one. Um, or a binary operation, so an operation that takes two inputs, is idempotent if if you apply it to two equal values, then you get that value as a result. For example, if you take the maximum of five and five, you get five. So mm-hmm. maximum is an idempotent um, operation. And thus concludes my mathematical interlude. <laughs> that is awesome. We should have those more often. That was fun. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I love maths. I did a lot of maths at school and uni. So I got excited about researching this. And I hope that some people out there found that useful and interesting. If you didn't, let me know. And I won't do one of those ever again. No, you better do them. I want to hear them. Those are awesome. And then the second trait about the capitalized conversion functions is that they can convert a wider number of input types than the usual two underscore methods do. And we'll see a couple examples of that a little bit later. Cool. So do you want to tell us a bit more about what FD goes on to talk about? Sure, I would love to. So he also talks about how, for example, in the integer function, it accepts a wider array of inputs, but it's also a lot pickier about what it can do and and what it can return. So for example, he talks about a string input. And when you do integer and then pass in a string value, you'll get an error, you'll get an argument error that basically says it's an invalid value. Um, Whereas if you called a string and then did 2i, you'd actually just get the number zero back. And so basically it's, it's interesting because although it is, it's more flexible in some ways, it's also stricter in other ways. But the thing that I appreciate about it is the thing that it is stricter about, it makes sense, right? So if you if you do try to make a string into an integer, you shouldn't be able to do that. It shouldn't equal zero. You know, it should it should have an error. So in those examples where you might have different forms of input that actually do make sense, integer will take them. But in the ones that don't actually make sense, it'll reject it. Yeah, and I liked his little characterization of when we call the integer function, what we're saying is convert this to an integer if there is any sensible way of doing so. <laughs> right. So when you're pre- keyword sensible, sensible. So when you've got a random string like ham sandwich, should that become <laughs> a zero or should that say? It should not. Exactly. And so when I'm looking at the different inputs, I'm wondering what in here i guess all of the uh, the string values right because it has integer 0 x 10 but it's you know in a string and that converts to 16 because that's a hexadecimal right exactly but if i were to do and i'm going to do this in my console right now if i did 0 x 10 and then i did dot 2 2i or 2 int 2i um, yeah, it'll give me back zero, which is not helpful if I'm, you know, if I'm trying to get integers. Um, so it looks like into the integer function is able to kind of see, even though it's, you know, in quotes, I understand that it's a hexadecimal, I understand it's binary, I understand it's these different values that actually can be converted to integers. And what happens if you call two int on that same hexadecimal string? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to try it right now. Oh, I get undefined method two int for string. I thought we'd get that. Yeah, I remember we talked about that. Was it last episode or two? A couple of episodes ago, ago, I think. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, that is very cool. And so, um, 
Yeah, and so it, it looks like, you know, there are certain functions where depending on how strict you want to be and, and what you're really looking for, it might make more sense to use these kernel modules and these functions here. So then my question becomes, when when should we use the, the 2i versus the integer? You know, and, and specifically for the other functions, right? Because when I saw that, I'm thinking, well, I always want to use these functions for everything. And I'm wondering if there are situations where it doesn't really make sense to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it goes back to this idea of what type of flexibility do we want? So it sounds like in some ways, if you can think of a sensible conversion of the input to the type that you want, then those functions will give you the um, the confidence or the, the safety net that they will they will find that conversion for you. So for example, when he talks about how the integer function behaves, he runs over a sort of stack of operations that it will go through before it returns a, a no method error. So, you know, it starts with a numeric value and will try and convert it to an integer or big num. If it's a float, it will truncate, truncate it. Any strings containing integers will be converted into decimal, hexadecimal, octal values. It will attempt to convert other objects using to int, and eventually it falls back to, to i. So essentially, you're adding on a stack of extra things that it's going to try, whereas to i will just try to i. And for to i to work, that class has to have to i defined on it. And it's likely that a small range of things will have that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so it's more flexible, but also maybe more strict a little bit. Yeah, I mean, FD recommends consulting the kernel documentation to learn more about how each of these conversion function works. So that's definitely something that I'm going to go away and do. Because I think once you do that, you'll get a better grasp of, ah, now I want to use this function or that function, because you'll know about how it's going to handle the range of inputs that you will likely get. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. And then one thing he notes near, I think it's near the end of this section, is the hash conversion function and the fact that there isn't one, which is surprising because it seems like all the other ones, you know, are, are matched. There's an integer one, there's a, you know, there's all the others. But for hash, there isn't one. And the closest thing that we have is using the hash and then the square brackets, which seems pretty close. Seems seems like a like a decent substitute. Yes, the only difference is that with that one, it's it takes essentially an even numbered list of arguments and then it will do key value, key value on those arguments. So there is less flexibility, but it's still useful. And I've definitely used that quite a few times in the current project I'm working on. Yeah, and so at the end, you know, he wraps up by saying that when we use a conversion function, we ensure that an input will be converted to the exact type, to the expected type, providing maximum leeway for the class of incoming objects. So definitely a good tool to have in your tool belt. Yeah, indeed. And then onto the next chapter, where Avdi focuses in on the array conversion function specifically. Which is interesting, right? That we have a whole section dedicated to just this one conversion function. Yeah, but it's it's cool because, uh, you know, in the conclusion of this chapter, Avdi essentially says it's his go-to tool for coercing inputs into two array. So it's going to be, it, he wanted to dedicate a whole chapter on it because he found it so useful. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And so he talks about how when we use the the array function, it allows us to, he calls it massager inputs, which I just, I love the idea of like massaging and 
I'm getting all the kinks out of my inputs, which can lead to a very forgiving API. And so the example that he gives for when we might want to have a more forgiving API is logs. And he talks about how when we have our app running and we want to, you know, we want to log different uh, different stuff, we may not, well, we probably don't want it to break because the log doesn't work. Um, instead, we might want it to just, you know, not return anything or return an empty string, you know, or, you know, just not have anything added to the log instead of it totally breaking. And so in that example, um, I'm just realizing how short of a chapter this is. This is like two pages long. Um, and so in, you know, his worst case scenario when using that is that nothing is logged at all, which is perfectly fine. Yeah. And so, you know, this is this chapter, very short, is essentially Avdi's shout out to the array conversion <laughs> function. And he says, it just behaves very sensibly whenever you want an array. And I use it before he turns to 2A um, when he knows that he needs an array input. So since the array conversion function has Avdi seal of approval, next time I want an array, I'm going to be reaching for it. Yeah, and it specifically calls out the string. It's funny. It's, it feels like the string has um, some limitations on you know on a bunch of these different functions. But when we pass in a string to array, we get back you know an array with the string in it. And if we try to call dot two a on a string, it, it doesn't it does not like it. So yeah, another example of uh, when it's really helpful to use the function and and how it's more flexible and what input it takes in awesome and i guess that's about it for this episode yeah i think so so what conversion protocols do you think you'll use tweet us at ruby book club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project and until then we will see you next week cheerio <laughs> that was awesome